from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. He wasn't really in the interest of shaking things up, of revolutionizing what freedom would look like. And that's what abolitionism was truly about. It was about developing what Black freedom could look like. Part of what made it credible was this pessimism, you know, a fear that the race problem, as Eliot would have put it, was more than America could handle. He sees himself as this person who knows best. He he is educated, he's a religious leader, he's a philanthropist. Um, he doesn't trust that Black people know what their own freedom is. He doesn't trust that Black people know what their own liberation could look like. I'm Sarah Fenske. Washington University's independent student newspaper, Student Life, recently dug into an unsavory part of the university's past, a founder's ties to slavery. St. Louis Public Radio reporter and newscaster Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson explored the topic, and she brings us more. Here's Marissa Ann. For many years, Washington University has portrayed one of its co-founders as an abolitionist, someone who wanted to abolish slavery. William Greenleaf Elliott's role in founding the school is undeniable, but his legacy and views on slavery are complicated. In many ways, he was a man of his times, but the notion that he was an abolitionist is simply not true. Recently, a team of WashU students and faculty came together to rethink Elliott's legacy and ties to the institution of slavery. It's part of an ongoing effort by the university to take a deeper look at its role. Joining me today is Ivor Bernstein, a professor of history in African and African-American studies at Washington University, and he's co-teaching the course Rethinking WashU's Relationship to Enslavement, Past, Present, and Future. Ivor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marissa Ann. I'm also joined by Nkimjika Imanike, a history major at WashU and teaching assistant for the course. She's one of several students who co-authored an article about their findings in the university's independent student newspaper, Student Life. Her co-authors are Adam Teich, Aidan Smythe, Cecilia Wright, and Dietrich Henderson. Nkimjika, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Ivor, I want to start with you. For a long time, people associated William Greenleaf Elliott with being an abolitionist and having anti-slavery views. But after coming through a ton of historical documents, y'all found that his views were complex and he did not align himself with being an abolitionist. What led to that conclusion? Well, thanks, Marissa. And those... Key documents that have allowed this amazing team of students to publish this article on William Greenleaf Elliott's views are really hiding in plain sight. And you only have to read about, you know, 15 minutes into the Elliott letters and his published articles, his sermons, to realize that not only was he not an abolitionist, he was vehemently opposed to abolitionism and saw the abolitionists as a great threat to the sorts of plans he wanted to develop for St. Louis and, by extension, Washington University. Then where did this narrative that he was an abolitionist even come from, and why did it even stick? 
That's such a great question. You know, looking at the label from the present day, it really does seem that having that label uh, serves some obvious sort of functions. It makes Elliot a sort of a founding father you can be proud of, uh, of Washington University. It's a simple label, and it seems to put him on the side of uh, morality and the angels. So there's no question that the branding of the university uh, as uh, a kind of progressive enterprise, which of course in so many ways it is, but to, to have Eliot's abolitionist imprimatur attached to that has been something that the university has been uh, happy to have. But the question of when in, you know, over the last I don't know, 150, 100 years, the mythology, if you will, of Eliot as an abolitionist came about is something that I think is going to be a subject of future research. And it is like quite ironic because he was definitely not a fan of the abolitionist movement. Your research found that Eliot thought of abolitionists as radicals and even described them at a point as being abolition Pharisees. That essentially, you know, would be fine with burning the country down to get their views across. And Kimchika, is there a clear reason why he felt so strongly opposed to abolitionists in comparison to other groups? Yeah, I think Eliot, kind of as I've mentioned, was in the process of building a city, building an institution. He was one of few wealthy men at the time who were very influential in sort of creating what St. Louis would be. They were seeking to put St. Louis on the map. And I think he saw abolitionists and sort of this idea of these radical northerners who didn't understand what the Missouri life was about and the St. Louis life was about, kind of imposing um, these really pretentious, quote unquote, views about what black liberation looked like in St. Louis. Um, He was very concerned with keeping the peace, staying moderate. Um, He wasn't really in the interest of shaking things up, of revolutionizing what freedom would look like. And that's what abolitionism was truly about. It was about developing what black freedom could look like, specifically in America. And he was very much of the impression that that would not happen overnight, um, that shouldn't happen overnight. And if it did, it would tear down the efforts he and his colleagues have put into building St. Louis. And to that point, in the run-up to the Civil War, there were a lot of conversations about the emancipation of enslaved Black people. Ivor, can you explain what it meant to be an abolitionist at that time and what it meant to support colonization instead? To be an abolitionist in the 1830s, say in 1834, when William Greenleaf Elliott steps off the riverboat and um, arrives in St. Louis from the Northeast, was to be part of an embattled minority. Abolitionists are routinely subject to violent attacks, both rhetorical and physical. The lynching of Francis McIntosh, which is a critically important event in St. Louis history, happens not long after Eliot arrives. And one of the reasons why Eliot, as the students have so so fantastically, so beautifully revealed in their article, one of the reasons why Eliot is so opposed to any sympathy at all, any human empathy for Francis McIntosh is because he believes that McIntosh either was an abolitionist, McIntosh a, a free 
black man, mixed race, American citizen of Philadelphia who is arriving on a boat in St. Louis. And Elliot fervently believes that McIntosh deserves the lynching, uh, that McIntosh deserves it because he is an abolitionist or connected to abolitionists somehow. Can you talk a little bit more about colonization? Can you describe to me what that looked like? Part of what made it credible is, you know, images of uh, the exodus in the Old Testament, the notion that large groups of people could somehow find freedom through long, long migrations. Part of what made it credible was this pessimism that Nekemjika was talking about, really, which is simply that, um, you know, a fear that the race problem, as Eliot would have put it, was more than America could handle that the social order simply would fracture and that black freedom and black people's freedom would best be realized outside the confines of a United States that would be torn apart by this struggle. So that was a a pessimistic view, very different from grassroots black opinion and from the abolitionist perspective. So as you mentioned, you know, Eliot supported the idea of colonization, which, you know, essentially meant sending free black people to a colonized Liberia. And some of his comments about where Black people fit in U.S. society are really racist. Um, In a speech to the St. Louis Young Men's Colonization Society, he said, quote, to place Black people upon an equal footing to whites, to give them equal political, social, and civil privileges with the whites is quite an impractical thing in our day and probably will be impracticable for many generations to come, if not forever. And Kimjika, can you walk me through the process of establishing a complete picture of Eliot that deviates from the narrative that has been there for a while? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the big question of of this article. Like, who is Eliot truly? And I think he was someone in speeches, in writings, in newspaper clippings. It always it would always be. You know, regardless of his own beliefs, he he took the stance because it was impractical because he didn't. He didn't think that it was right to take a strictly abolitionist stance. But at some point, you kind of have to realize that 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 is his personal belief, right? Like you can't, you can no longer separate from like, regardless of what he thinks, like this is the stance that he took and this is what he said because he he's saying what he believes. And I think to paint a complete picture of Eliot is to kind of recognize that, you know, his roots in colonization, his writing of the story of Archer Alexander um, are all rooted in this sort of paternalism and patronizing view of Black people. He sees himself as, I think the term white savior is a really good word, um, but he sees himself as this person who knows best. He he is educated. He's a religious leader. He's a philanthropist. Um, he doesn't trust that Black people know what their own freedom is. He doesn't trust that Black people know what their own liberation could look like. Um, and he's a firm believer that whatever that would look like, that that's not going to happen in America. And that any effort towards that um, is frivolous. It's pointless. Did Elliot ever own any enslaved people? The data that we've had, um, we did some research. We also have a student, um, Charlie Fallon, who in his um, research of the 1840 census, I believe, um, listed a W.G. Eliot as owning one enslaved person. There are other documents that um, show that Eliot had bought an enslaved person um, with the intention of freeing them. 
but there's not really any documentation of what happens to that enslaved person after he had bought them. So um, from what we know, he had owned at least one or two enslaved people um, he had bought with the purpose of um, freeing them. So Elliot was also a Unitarian minister. The church took a strong stance against slavery, and Elliot was opposed to the church drawing the line in the sand. He avoided talking about it from the pulpit, and he even resigned from a leadership role in the church. And yet, he published an entire story about Archer Alexander, a Black man who fought for his freedom. With this information in Kimjika, how did that change the interpretation of his relationship with Archer Alexander? I think, you know, understanding all that background of where he kind of was on the spectrum of Unitarian ministers and their anti-slavery stances, just from speaking with the um, first Unitarian church and also just doing a bit of research about Unitarianism in the 1800s and how many of them were, in fact, radical abolitionists, I think it kind of put into perspective that what Eliot was writing truly was a product of his time in St. Louis. I think it kind of put into perspective that he was conservative even for his time, even for his um, community of people, even for his you know religious community. He was very conservative in his beliefs of slavery. And I think thinking of that in terms of the Archer Alexander story, yeah, I think he just views Archer Alexander again as just the exception. He doesn't foresee abolitionism as the next step. That's Nkimjika Emenike, a history student at Washington University, talking with St. Louis Public Radio's Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson. Also joining Marissa Ann is Ivor Bernstein, a professor of history and African and African-American studies at Washington University. They're discussing a recent article in WashU's student newspaper. It details university co-founder William Greenleaf Elliott's ties to slavery. We'll have more of Marissa Ann's conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air. St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. Let's return to St. Louis Public Radio's Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson's conversation about Washington University co-founder William Greenleaf Elliott. In the past, Wash U had claimed Elliott was an abolitionist. That's even though he was deeply opposed to the anti-slavery movement. Marissa Ann's guests are history student in Kimjika Emenike and Professor Ivor Bernstein. Well, Ivor, all of this research, while yes, professors were included, Students were putting in the work, hours upon hours, digging into all these documents. What led to having students involved in this kind of extensive research? That's really the great story here. Uh, And it's the piece of this in a way that uh, has been most important to me and to my co-instructor and, uh, dare I say, co-conspirator, Carl (laughs) Craver, uh, professor of philosophy at WashU, who you know is spiritually uh, at my side in this interview. Um, anyway, Carl and I are f- connected on the idea that students should be not just finding these documents, which is a usual mode for undergraduate research assistants, 
but they should be actively involved in the work and the intellectual work of interpreting them. Uh, not only have these students sort of written or set in motion the writing of, of new histories of the university, but they've done it in a kind of plain spoken and accessible way, which I hope will provide a resource for the broader community. It's definitely a deep dive. Um, and I imagine that there was so much information that was left um, on the cutting room floor that did not make it into that Student Life article that was already jam-packed with a ton of information. Um, but in Kimjika, you're a history major and it's something that you're really passionate about. What's been your biggest takeaway from the work that you've done in this class? My biggest takeaway from, you know, this project being able to truly understand the impacts of um, a historical research experience, I think, is really um, important, I think, for me to see and I think for many other people to see who are in the humanities, who are in research. And I think the big question we get um, is, you know, why does this matter? Um, and, you know, this is why it matters, because this history as an institution, we act on precedent. Everyone acts on precedent. Um, the past is directly responsible for how we conduct ourselves right now. Um, and this history of Eliot, of our founders, um, and their, you know, nuanced, often very violent um, relationship with enslavement is an important history to kind of take back when considering who is wash you for. This course is part of a much larger effort by the university to examine its involvement in the institution of slavery. And earlier this year, the university joined more than 80 colleges and universities, and I'm sure that number is still growing, um, that are studying their ties to slavery. And I should know that I reached out to Chancellor Andrew Martin for this story. And in a statement, he said, it's crucial for the university to take a look at its past and quote, through research projects and our involvement in initiatives like university studying slavery, our faculty, students, and staff will gain a better understanding of our history and the ways slavery and racism have impacted our campus and our relationship with the St. Louis community. This question is for both of you. What do you make of this support from the university? I think it is, um, it is something to be applauded. Um, Chancellor Martin is taking uh, a extremely valuable and uh, bold um, position when he endorses this kind of research and this kind of searching self-examination of the university. Um, uh, that said, um, I don't think self-congratulation, and I don't think that's what he's involved in, perhaps now just the opposite, but self-congratulation is and has been the usual uh, sort of branding, the mode of presentation of, of not just Washington universities, but many, many of the universities who are now involved in this kind of work. And what I, what I love about the students' research uh, is that it, it presents itself in a question-asking mode, which is very different from self-congratulation. Yeah, I think it's necessary work, right? Like, I don't... Um... And I don't say this to contradict Ivor, but I don't see any congratulations for an institution researching the ways in which it's contributed to the harm of the people in its community. Um, that's necessary work. That's work that um, needs to be done. That's work that should have been done. Um, and so I'm glad it's being done now. And I'm glad with the students that I've been working at with um, and the professors I've been working with, 
that it's being done by people who truly care and who are um, taking efforts to really handle this information as delicately, but also at the same time, as aggressively as possible, like looking at this information, being understanding of it, but then asking the hard, aggressive questions as to, you know, why, like, why is this happening? Um, How has our university contributed to different types of harm, I think is really, it's a really important question. How do you hope the university and the St. Louis region view Elliot going forward? Well, I hope they regard Elliot as um, the beginning of a conversation rather than the end of a conversation. So often he has been regarded as, as a kind of self-evident fact. And I think our region has benefited to think that it has this, you know, abolitionist hero that somehow compensates for Missouri as a slave state and St. Louis as a slavery city. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been an unearned pride, uh, an unearned pride about Eliot, which should be transformed into uh, a nuanced and complex uh, understanding of Eliot uh, that opens up questions and doesn't close them off. Eliot is not a brand. He's a complex historical figure rooted in a troubling and still present reality. What about you and Kim Jika? I think um, a big thing for me is just understanding that, yeah, history um, and people, they're not one-dimensional. And we know that when we think about things in the present day and we think about um, people in our own lives, but suddenly when we think about people in history and people in the 1800s, we don't think about all the nuances and all the the different experiences that they have um, that are making up the decisions that they make. Um, and that's not to excuse what Eliot has done, but rather to say that, you know, he is at the end of the day a product of many different forms of enforcing, you know, white supremacy, oppression. Um, I think I would just like the university to understand that, you know, it's not that Elliot was a good guy, bad guy. It's that Elliot was very, very complex. Um, And that, yeah, and understanding what that means for an institution that was founded in some of the country's most, like, stark periods of racial violence and racial reckoning. Um, What does that mean? So, yeah, I think just kind of taking into the full context of you know, Elliot wasn't just this philanthropist who built up all these institutions in St. Louis, but he also had some very problematic, at best, views of where Black people who made up a good amount of the city, what their place would be in St. Louis. And as I imagine, the research and the story continues. I want to thank you both, Ivor and Kimjika, for coming and sharing all of your research with us. Yes, thank you for having us. Um, thank you for giving us the platform to, um, yeah, I guess share what's now been a year's worth of research and history. Thank you. We are grateful. This episode was co-produced by Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson, Alex Hoyer, and Maria Altman, with audio engineering and editing by Alex and Marissa Ann. This podcast was mixed and edited by Jane Mather Glass. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio.
Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.